From Hoochie's Dollar Store, it's the IGN Digigods. Please welcome two folks who don't got no reason to kill nobody, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. And we are back with new intros. We finally got the new intros recorded. Thank you. And Corey, that first new intro, to whom do we owe the grace? That was brought to you by Alexander Berlika. There we go. Starting off a good one with our longtime listener, good friend Alexander Berlika. Alexander, big shout out to you in Belarus. Uh, you have started us off with, uh, we, we got those like a year ago. Everybody sent them in. We haven't been able to coordinate with Corey because. You, you know what? You, you, we all have ridiculous there schedules. No, there is no excuse to say we got these a year ago. Well, look, I mean, look, bottom line. Corey has a very difficult schedule. Until recently, had a very difficult schedule. I have a baby. You, I, I have nothing you, going you, on. You have some strange job that, uh, that obligates. Honestly, here, in the last week and a half. Yes, ma'am. You have been in New York. You've been celebrating Passover, doing the whole thing, right? Yes. And you come back, and they make you work on Good Friday because you're Jewish? What's the deal with that? What is, how does that explain why it took us a year to record new intros? Because we have strange schedules. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Well, what a fantastic show today. Seriously, this is one of those shows where I'm like, I, we, we're not vamping. We're not going blah, 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 blah. This is fantastic. Great, amazing stuff. Uh, we, we got a Stephen Freer's interview. We have Stephen Frears. Stephen freaking Frears. a couple of movies Stephen Frears has dreamt to go. And, and, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Queen, Sammy and Rosie Got Laid, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, on and on and on and on. Okay, the guy uh, who, I'm just saying, the guy who directed Mrs. The Henderson Queen. Presents. Mrs. Henderson Presents. On and on. He's doing the new Lance Armstrong film, which did not make the final selection at Cannes. Nobody quite knows why. Uh, but he's finishing it. It's not done. So The guy uh, who directed let me The say Queen... This. Has was interviewed by us. Let me say this: uh, I talked to him for about ten minutes. We'll throw we'll throw it up on the show later on when we talk about Philomena, which of course is why we're talking to him. He was he's it, it was by phone. He's in the UK. He's working on the Lance Armstrong film. He's finishing it up. Um, and I have to say, I knowing what Frears is like, I, I went into this thing completely and unabashedly intimidated. Because you know he's a no nonsense guy, right? Frears is like I, and you're going to hear this in the interview. It's just it's just me treading water trying to get through this thing. Because Frears, he just treats it like a job. It's a, he's a blue collar guy. He's a working class guy. Making movies is his job. He goes in. It's a nine to five thing for him, and he just does it, or nine to nine thing in movie language. And he does his thing, and he doesn't like to talk about it, and he hates the whole press thing, and he hates all the glam, and he's very dry, and he's very acerbic. And I'm thinking, you know what, I am the 97th guy that he is going to be talking to this morning, and uh, he's going to, I'm going to, even despite my best efforts, I'm still going to ask him the same 75 questions that everyone else has been asking him, or at least a third of them, and he's just going to be really short, and he's going to give me those blunt Nick Nolte answers, and I I just got to get out of this thing alive. That's all I was thinking. And then it's it's kind of a poor connection with the UK as well, so there's a few dropouts, but you know what, I... (laughs) I got out of it alive. I didn't. I didn't piss him off. I even made him laugh once. So, you know, hey, he's what awesome. More, what more can you ask for? The queen. I talked talk to Stephen Frears. You did talk to Stephen. I Frears. talked to Stephen Frears, and uh, the good thing is, it was by phone. So when he sees me again in person, he won't ever remember this, and uh, he won't punch me. This, by the way, is one of our best shows ever. Not only are we interviewing the director of the Queen, yes. and Philomena, yes, we also have. Two classics. Oh my gosh! And including it's, one of my favorite films of all time, we also have a William Freakin film that is way, way is, long overdue. On this Blu-ray. is this is a fantastic week, and it's a good week for me to like 
you know, because uh, next week I'm I'm slammed. I got I got film week. I'm to the wa- next week. You know, the next show is going to be like lame. I'll tell you that right now. Because uh, I got well, well, no, because I, I got I got it's Colcoa week, right? So Colcoa being the City of Light, City of Angels festival. So I'm not on the jury this year. Thank goodness. Our friend Tim is on the jury, where he's going to have to watch 26 movies in about 10 days. And it's true, and literally 26 movies in 10 days. It is. It's like 26 movies in 10 days. And uh, I, I've done that three times previously. Don't want to do it again. But uh, I do have to. Um, I do have to watch uh, some uh, Cedric Klapich movies, and because uh, I'm, I'm uh, moderating an interview with Cedric Klapich next week. Who the hell is Cedric Klapich? The freaking French director, man. Lame. Come on, Lame. Oh, dude, he's great. Klapich is the man. K L A P I S C H. Uh, Cedric Klapich. That's great. Okay, wait. Hey, before uh, you start, I'm, I need to take. I need to do this. What do you have to do? I'm going to uh, season a cast iron pan with Wesson oil. No canola oil. Okay, but oh. it's Wesson. You buy Wesson canola oil? Whatever, who cares? Uh, wait, don't tell me. Like, you, I'm uh, sure you buy some fifty dollar a pint. No, I go to Co- I go to Costco and I get like a gallon of it for like half the price that you paid. You know, for thirty two okay. ounces of Wesson. So uh, I'm going to season this cast iron pan by putting a little dollop into the pan, swirling it around. Yes, that's right. With this, yes, and then I'm going to put it into the oven upside down at about two hundred degrees, and let it sit there for maybe like you know forty five minutes. All right. I, I don't actually... When I season it, I just put it back in the... I don't even put it in the oven. Really? No. I just wipe the oil around and let it sit there. To, to, to go talk and, about movies. And I wipe it, around with, wipe it around with my fingers. You know, first I'm going to make mention of some books. we got some books. New books out. Movie books. Um, no, I have not read all of them cover to cover. Give them a little cursory look. A little glance. A little, uh, little, little bit of looking in this and so forth. Uh, pretty great book here. Uh, Dan Callahan's Vanessa, A Life of Vanessa Redgrave. Now, of course, Vanessa Redgrave is still alive, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't end on a downer. And uh, it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not a, a, uh, a warts and all, you know, totality of, your, of her life biography. But it, because um, there's a lot of stuff with, you know... With the uh, you know the whole political thing, Israel and Palestine and all that stuff that that gets a little uh, a little dodgy, but uh, this is the first biography that's ever been published of Vanessa Redgrave, and uh, it's it's lovely. I mean, from a movie standpoint, from just a fan fan standpoint, uh, it certainly does you know immerse you in the uh, in you know why she's a legend and why the Redgraves are such an amazing family. You know, Father Michael Redgrave and obviously all of her her daughters, and it's uh, it, it's good. So this is an advanced copy that was sent to us, and. Uh, I, you know, I read uh, about a chapter and a half and thoroughly enjoyed it, so I'm looking forward to reading the entire thing. Uh, then we also have uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel screenplay by Wes Anderson. And I can, love this And movie. you can actually get a, uh, an, an interactive version of this, uh, I believe, uh, as an e-book. But this is just the straight-up screenplay, not in screenplay format, I'm sorry to say. It's in the, uh, the kind of, you know, the, the, the reformatted, easy-read version with, uh, you know, times and italics fonts and stuff but um, I read a little bit of it I have not yet seen the movie I oh, should point the movie's out great. I know I hear the movie's fantastic so I read a little bit of it just enough to give me a flavor of it and it's, it looks terrific I mean it's a fun script really fun script and has some sketches at the end uh, costume sketches character sketches really that's, a, that's, a, that's pretty cool if you're a Wes Anderson fan and then this is just to die for The Art of the Wind Rises uh, the uh, Miyazaki film from last year this is a coffee table book hardcover absolutely fantastic Mark check this out look at this it's beautiful. It's a terrific film. It's is gorgeous. I mean, yep. it's a wonderful film. And, uh, you know, if you just want a beautiful coffee table book just with the... Uh, I mean, look at the artwork. Look at that. It's beautiful. I mean, seriously. This is it, incredible. It, it, it's a very well-designed book. Oh, it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Well, what's it called again? 
The Art of the Wind Rises. It's really, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely book, beautifully put together, and uh, it, it's not just sort of a, a look at Miyazaki and why he's such a great animator, but it really is, it's just from an art standpoint, it's amazing, and then you have a bunch of, look at this, all these, these one-sheets here, look at the, the one-sheet art. Beautiful. Fantastic. Beautiful. It's fantastic. fantastic. I mean, you know, when you look at a frame of a Miyazaki film, yeah. you know you're looking at a Miyazaki film. It, true. It, it, because it's not like any other anime. Right. It has it just it has like a warmth to it, and it has an elegance to it, and there's a, this kind of a soulfulness, right? Absolutely. It's like a, there's just a, there's something different, you know. So, all right, Mark, I'm going to start off on some um, on some television here. Okay. And I, uh, Do the television. That's fine. I'm letting people know that soon we'll be talking about great movies. We'll that be talking care about amazing about, movies. Yes. Not a bunch of TV crap. We're, well, we're getting, we're getting the TV out of the way first. Get wait, so wait, so you don't first. put this in the oven? You, you, you just, now th- this is a La Creuset enameled cast iron pan. Yes. You do not put this in the oven. I don't have La Creuset. I, we, 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 we use Staub or Stobe, depending on how you pronounce it, S-T-A-U-B, which is uh, better than La Creuset. Blah, blah, blah. So there. Yeah, no, you know why? It's, no, it's not better. It's just more expensive. That's why you like it. <laughs> it's, di- it's different. It's made in France. Okay, so the question being, so is it enameled cast iron? Yes, it is. It's enameled. It's the other one. It's the it's the competing brand. They're they're essentially it? synonymous. Do you season it? Yes. Well, how do you season it? I just get a little bit of uh, of uh, of Costco canola oil, and I put a little dollop in there, and then I wipe it around with my fingers, and I just, you know smooth it around with my fingers, and that's it. Get it get it there, get it really nice, and then if there's any excess, I kind of wipe it up so it's not sort of drippy, and then I just uh, put it away. So you you don't put it in the oven? No. Wow. Controversial. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, first off, uh, you know, from the Warner Archive collection is The Class, the complete series. A series that, for some reason, I completely had never heard of. Totally missed this. Uh, 2006, 2007, you familiar with this, Mark? Say the again? Class, the Class, the complete series, The Class? No. You any no, way familiar I, with I have not heard of it. So well, anyway, it's uh, David Crane and David Crane and uh, Jeffrey Cleric, who created respectively uh, Friends and Mad About You, no slouches. Um, they uh, they created this, and uh, it's um, you know, it's interesting. Um, you can tell that that this is something that might work if it had better cast chemistry. It's not that the cast is bad. I mean, they're you know some some good actors here, but. Um, I don't know, like Jason Ritter's in here and, uh, you know, John Bernthal but, uh, from, you know, The Walking Dead. But it, it's like, I don't know, for some reason it just doesn't click. And maybe if this had been on for three, four, five more seasons, it would have clicked. But it just, it's, it, I don't know, it just doesn't, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't hit me. It doesn't have that frenzy thing that I think everybody was hoping for. But anyway, so that's out there. Um, and then Mark, Vintage Television. Johnny Loves Chachi. That is awesome. Right? Yes. Complete series. Seasons, the complete series, seasons one and two, because it only <laughs> lasted two seasons. And it's kind of sad, because uh, that, that, that romance went on forever on Happy Days, and they grow up on the show, and then they got their own show, and nobody wanted to watch it. And then uh, didn't Erin Moran, her life completely disintegrated? She became, she, I think she lost her home when she was living in a trailer oh park gosh, or something like that. Oh my gosh, it's the worst. It's so sad. And Scott Baio went he's, on. He, he's a, he works. He's, he, do, he does yeah, stuff occasionally. Yeah. He, he's got, doesn't he, didn't he have a reality show there for a He had a reality a show yeah. about how he was 50 years old and single. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I have to say one of my all-time favorite memories of life was being uh, at Battle of the Network Stars and being four feet away when Scott Baio did the, the softball dunk, and he dunked uh, Heather Thomas and Heather Locklear. 
Ooh. right before my eyes. It was, it was, it was like, I don't know. It was, it was just one of those rare experiences. It was like an out of body experience. That's not what I, I like to, to do to those two women right before my eyes. <laughs> I like to see them do other things. <laughs> At least back then. Uh, Today they're sixty years old and. Uh, but it. but that being said, uh, Joni loves Chachi. It's not a bad show, honestly. Watching it again, it's not terrible. I mean, it's it's not that funny. I mean, the problem is that that you want a sitcom to be funny. And they weren't exactly the funny people on Happy Days. I mean, they had their funny moments, but it was like they were part of a, an ensemble. And you extract the, less, the least funny part of an ensemble and give them their own show, suddenly it doesn't quite work. That's why, you know, Sanford and Son was hysterical with Grady, but you give Grady his own show. Grady's not funny for 30 straight minutes. <laughs> Grady's funny when he walks in for like five minutes, you know what I mean? So Grady's awesome. Yeah, well, you know. Well, you know, Wade, uh, season three of New Hearts, speaking of old shows, uh, that's out. Now, New Hearts uh, was a fun show. I did not like it as much as the original Bob Newhart show in the 70s. This thing lasted for eight seasons, Wade. Eight seasons of New Newhart show. I know. And, uh, you know, they were, you can tell season three they were already starting to run out of ideas because at the end of season two, if you remember, uh, Bob Newhart starts hosting a public access TV show, and they spilled that into season three, and it just seemed like uh, just – just a conduit for easy jokes about television and public access. So already, to me, the show was already kind of starting to tread water. Not my favorite. But it did, however, include the greatest finale in the history of television. Everyone talks about how the Breaking it, it really the, is. Everyone talks about how the, uh, the Dexter finale was terrible and the How I Met Your Mother finale was terrible. The Newhart finale, the best. So brilliant. It really was. But we're still like five seasons away. It's so brilliant. It's just, it was the best. Uh, Charlie Sheen, Anger Management. Now, this seemed like uh, casting Kumaid Made in Heaven. Charlie Sheen in a show called Anger Management for FX. This show uh, is lame. And I think Two and a Half Men is lame, and you love Two and a Half Men. Well, I... Now, this show got a very quick <laughs> okay. pickup. This show, exactly. This show got a very quick pickup. It was kind of famous at the time because um, it did pretty well out of the gate, so they picked it up for like 96 episodes. Mm. For like a cut rate price. And people wondered why they would pick up a show for like 96 episodes for, for you know, like pretty much for a song. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the show was, if you do 96 in one big shot, yep. you can take all those episodes and sell them there overseas That's it. to dozens of different territories. And everybody gets incredibly wealthy if you can just crank out 96 episodes mm-hmm. for a fire sale price in a short period of time. And that's what happened. Yep. So now we have Anger Management Season uh, Volume 3, um, where uh, Charlie does his Charlie Sheen thing. I just don't get it. It's just not my thing. Well, you know, the movie uh, Anger Management was so outstanding, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, Farscape has uh, been out before from any home video previously. It is now part of Cinedime's library. So Cinedime, of course, is releasing the whole thing all over again on DVD and Blu-ray. Got the uh, 15th anniversary release of the season four here and uh, 22 episodes. Uh, the show age is fine. I was never a huge Farscape fan. I have friends who worship this and can quote from it endlessly and think it's like the greatest science fiction series of all time and totally underrated. And I completely understand why they uh, believe that and uh, you know, Keep fighting the good fight. Just fight for it. Um, someday Farscape will will become the Star Trek of the future. In the future, actually, when Star Trek becomes a reality, I, they will probably be Farscape fans. And then we also have uh, Carol Burnett's show, of course, is out in its totality. But for people who don't want to actually own the entire Carol Burnett show, they have these little uh, collections, greatest hits uh, compilations. 
And this is the Carol Burnett Show, Carol's Crackups. This is um, 17 new unedited episodes on six DVDs and a ton of bonus features. And uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's all great, man. It's, uh, it's just fantastic. Tim Conway's funny and uh, Vicky Lawrence is hilarious and, uh, you know, Harvey Corman cracks up and, and screws everything up constantly. And uh, this is great. So this is, uh, these are the episodes precisely as they originally aired on television. Uh, totally uncut, and uh, it's great. Carol Burnett's show is one of the reasons why I decided to work in TV. Really? The two shows that, that really made me want to work in TV were Carol Burnett and Mary Tyler Moore. Wow. Both women. I know. And wow. which, is, which is amazing because I'm such a misogynist. My goodness. And then The Practice, the final season, is out for the first time. Uh, you know, James Spader, not aging well, but... Somehow he's adapting to each new phase of the thing that he does. You know, it's he, like the, the guy's going to be starring as the villain in the sequel to the third highest grossing uh, film I, of all time. It's amazing, but I mean, I mean, you look at him now in in uh, in the uh, the blacklist, right? The blacklist that's what it's called, right? Huh? Yeah, that that people love that show. I, I know. Well, I that mean, is a unqualified hit for NBC. But he's like weird and creepy. He's weird and creepy in it. Um, anyway, uh, no, the, you know, the practice was a good show. One of the, uh, 79 shows that David E. Kelly had on at the same time before he completely burned out. And, uh, you know, this segued into, uh, Boston Legal and, uh, which was complete change of pace. Don't you think that the way that this turned into Boston Legal is a little bit of the reverse of the way that Mary Tyler Moore, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show segued into Lou Grant? You loved Boston Legal. Why Boston did you love that show so much? It's so freaking hilarious. Denny Crane, man, come on. Yeah, William yeah. Shatner's the only guy who's ever been able to reinvent himself as a television icon twice. Really and is. if you consider him, if you consider the character that he does on the, uh, the Priceline commercials, he's done it three times. He really is the best. I mean, it's amazing. And then uh, right before we get into uh, the, uh, all the amazing movies that we have to talk about. Oh, so, oh, so, many, so good many good movies. Um, Mr. Magoo, the theatrical collection, 1949 to 1959, four discs, 53 theatrical shorts, as well as the uh, 1001 Arabian Nights the- uh, feature film, theatri- full-length theatrical feature film, uh, and a ton of extras. And I, I love Mr. Magoo. Uh, cannot get enough of Mr. Magoo. Uh, you know, uh, Jim Backus, the, the, I mean, there's a guy who reinvented himself as well. He's the, not only the voice of Mr. Magoo, he's freaking Gilligan's Island. Mr. Thurston Howell the, the is, third. The best. Yeah, so um, great stuff. You get interviews and commentaries and stills, and uh, it's, it's really, really great. Uh, really, really great. Some television specials on here. Uh, you know, uh, there's just no end to how fun Mr. Magoo is. And the animation, in hindsight, is really quite good. It's very, very fun. So uh, it's, but it's very 1950s. You know, you can can't you just totally tell shorts that come from the 1950s versus the 40s versus the 30s versus the 70s? The styles change. It's just unmistakable. Yes, Wade. It is. It's unmistakable. I, so it's, it's unmistakable. Fantastic. So what you're saying is it's unmistakable. Unmistakable. All right, Mark. We're not going to get into the new movies yet. We'll get into the movies later because we got the uh, we got the uh, Stephen Frears interview there. But. Um, I'm going to talk for just a moment. I'll let you get to it. I'll let you get to it. I'm going to talk for just a moment about something that our fans have been waiting for for a very long time. Everyone has been waiting a very long time for William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Okay? This is, this is big, Wade. Huge. Absolutely fantastic. Not and, and Sorcerer, of course, is a remake of The Wages of Fear, which itself is a masterpiece. The this Clouseau those, film. The Clouseau film, which is, this is one of those rare cases where a remake of a masterpiece becomes, in its own way, a completely different kind of a masterpiece. And you know what? Sorcerer is just an unbelievable, 
This is, an, this is an, a, a, a blankety-blanker of a movie. This is a, a blank kicker. I mean, if this were not a family show, I, I would just be, I would be filling up my daughter's swear jar left and right. Uh, this is just, it's such an intense, awesome film. And Friedkin just nails it. it, it in many respects, I almost think this is a better directed film than uh, The Exorcist or French Connection. Really? I do. I just Very think this intense. is, I think he just cranks it. The Tangerine Dream music is the one and only time that Tangerine Dream, maybe if you, risky business, but certainly uh, this is the best score that they ever did. I mean, it really, really just kills it. And it is a gorgeous, gorgeous Blu-ray book. Uh, the uh, the classic uh, uh, you know Blu-ray book style that Warner Brothers pioneered. This, of course, is Universal, and uh, it's gorgeous. 121 minutes of just fantastic, intense, just gripping, riveting. Uh, Roy Scheider, just just gosh, it's just intense. It's just so good. Truck hauling nitroglycerin. Give me a break. What a great premise. Give me, oh, gosh, I just can't get enough. Anyway, um, here's the thing about Sorcerer. Sorcerer was a failure theatrically. This film's re- reputation is entirely after the fact. This is one of those movies like 2001 that was a failure initially and then kind of grew and became this thing and, and, and you know, it, it, it just developed a, a life of its own. The reason being, do you know why it failed? Because it came out the same week as? Star Wars. I mean, dumb luck that. Yep. Unbelievable. But also, I, I think also part of the reason why was yeah. because it wasn't as readily available to see. True. I mean, you know, 2001, it was on TV and it was on Laserdisc and Blu-ray and DVD and VHS and all that sort of stuff. Where Sorcerer was sort of like this film you had to seek out. And look, anyone who's seen it in a revival print, it looks horrible. I mean, the the, the prints that have been circulating are terrible. What they've done here is just pristine. This is the movie as it was meant to be seen. It's gorgeous. You have to own it. This is one of those must-own Blu-rays. You've got to have it on your shelf. No question. Done. Over. Love it. There it is. Wait, can I tell you something? Yes. One of my all-time favorite films. It's on Blu-ray. <sighs> yes. You are going to give me this, aren't you? Nope. God damn it. Nope. Uh, Double Indemnity. That's right. 1944, the quintessential noir. The sequel to Single Indemnity. A lot of people don't know that. And the prequel to Triple Indemnity. That's right. A lot of people don't know that either. Actually, it was Double Indemnity 2, Electric yeah. Boogaloo. Yeah. Anyway, directed by Billy Wilder. This is based on the uh, James Cain uh, novella. And uh, this is not only, one of the, not only the quintessential noir, but actually one of the quintessential films about Los Angeles. I remember the 75th time I saw this movie, mm-hmm. they screened it. Here in Los Angeles, there's a cemetery called the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And in the summertime, they will let people into the cemetery. They will take their, uh, their blankets and they'll go to the supermarket and get potato chips and dip. And you'll sit on the, on the cemetery grounds and they'll project a film onto the mausoleum wall. Yes. And I, I went to a bunch of them before they became too popular. And then I couldn't get in. I anyway. mm-hmm. didn't want to wait in line. Anyway, one of the last ones I saw was Double Indemnity. And there's a scene in Double Indemnity. It was uh, part of the voiceover, Fred McMurray's voiceover, where he talks about the sumptuous home that Barbara Stanwyck lives. And I don't remember the exact line, although I've seen it the movie a thousand times. But it was something like, you know, the house was so expensive, he paid like $5,000 for it. That's how expensive the house was. And uh, got a big laugh from the audience. At the cemetery, Wade couldn't care less. What I'm saying is that Double Indemnity is the best. It is a film that I can watch over and over again like The Godfather. It's great. And what's amazing is that of everybody in this film, Edward G. Robinson, Barbara Stanwyck, the, the casting that always stood out was Fred McMurray. Because Fred McMurray yeah. had not done a film like this. True. And Billy Wilder, had, true. Billy Wilder had asked everybody in Hollywood to yeah. do this movie. It's true. And McMurray was like the bottom of the barrel. But in the way... 
he was perfect because you feel that he could be duped. Yep. You know, he's he didn't he never came he came he came across as a bit of a doofusy actor to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and the and but putting him in this film worked because you felt like Barbara Stanwyck can fool him. Yep. So I bought it. And we all bought it because it's a classic. So this is just fantastic. It's uh, it's a I don't know where the what um, where they got the print, but it's been digitally remastered, totally restored. There's two future commentaries, both old. One is with Richard Schickel, and the other is with uh, Lem Dobbs, who is a screenwriter, does a lot of um, Soderbergh, Soderbergh stuff. Soderbergh stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also a um, there's the Dublin. You know, okay, this was a waste of, of, of bit space, but they do include the. Um, the the made for television movie based on the film from 1973 called Double Indemnity, which is a total waste of time. Yeah, it's terrible. But who cares? Because it's Double uh, Indemnity Blu-ray 70th anniversary. Why are you listening to this podcast? You should be buying it now. Yes, this moment. Absolutely. And there's another film, another one of my another one of my all-time favorite films. The, the, I mean, it's, these two are being released basically as a, as a tandem, as a, uh, a universal tandem. Uh, let me tell you something. Yeah. Touch of Evil. You know what? Best performance uh, of, of a, a Mexican by Charlton Heston ever. I. <laughs> yeah. It's from 1958. Of all the Mexicans that he's ever performed in, in his life, that's the best one. It's true. Uh, it's from 1958. This is uh, Orson Welles' last good film. What? Well, it's sort of his, his, last com- his last actually completed film. I know. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's the last film where you thought that it's the film he wanted to make yeah yeah you know where people weren't pulling the rug out from under him no. every 10 minutes yeah so this is Charlton Heston Janet Lee, and Orson Welles it also uh, contains great. one of the great opening shots of all it time it really is um, over three minutes tracking shot it's unbelievable and uh, it's a great film yep. is, is Charlton Heston miscast I mean yes <laughs> but now it's just it part of the it's part, part of the landscape the landscape it's of the part film of, it, it is it's, it's, it's you know we, you, we can't imagine the film without it it's true. It is. It's a thing. So. so this is great. There's three versions of the film on this Blu-ray. There's the reconstructed version, which was re-edited in 1988. Um, and it's considered the definitive cut because it's based on Wells's, um 58-page memo to the studio. Now, the 58-page memo that Orson Welles wrote to the studio mm-hmm. is pretty famous. It is very famous. Because the studio, of course, recut his film. Yep. Like they always do. Orson Welles wrote a 58-page memo outlining what he wanted to see in the film, which, of course, the studio said go to hell. Yep. And they released the cut that they released. Still a classic. Totally. But on the DVD, on the Blu-ray, you get... You get the, the reconstructed You uh, get the Wells reconstructed cut. Wells cut. Yep. Not recut by Wells. No. But based on, based on his, his instructions notes, his notes. in the 58 Which, which by the way, are, are extremely detailed. So it, was, it wasn't like there was a lot of uh, wiggle room and, and extrapolating as to what he may have wanted. So That's absolutely right. true. Now, by the way, the um, the fifty eight page memo is included in this Blu ray. Yep. In the little tiny booklet. Yep. Which is key. Outstanding. Anyway, three versions of the film. One is the reconstructed version. The other is the theatrical version, and the other is a preview version, which was created mm-hmm. before its actual release and does include some of Wells's instructions Indeed from the fifty eight page memo. So you get three different versions of the film. You get a couple of uh, feature commentaries, and it's great. It's a must buy. Touch of Evil. Double Indemnity, must buys. I will tell you what else I think is a must buy is Once on Blu-ray. Once finally makes it. I love this film so much. I love this film so much. I actually bought the uh, region-free version. I know. It, this is, you know, finally out from uh, from Fox on Blu-ray. It is it is such a delightful movie. Tons of special features here, uh, commentaries, uh, you know, by uh, John Carney who directed it, and, and obviously the uh, the two actors. 
um, uh, featurettes. It's just really, really great. And uh, not a great looking film per se. It was made for like a buck fifty, and oh, they shot it on digital, and uh, you know, in about eighteen seconds. Uh, so it's not, you know, you're not going to like get it on Blu-ray and go, oh my gosh, it's a cinematography Oscar winner. It's not even close. It's still a, a grungy, dirty looking little oh. ultra low budget Irish film. Love it. However, that's what plays to its strengths because it's 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 such a heartfelt, soulful movie. When they sing those songs live on camera, it oh. just it rips you apart, doesn't oh, it? It's the best. It's I, amazing. I, I absolutely love this movie. It's I a absolutely miracle. unreservedly love this movie. Because Came a hit on Broadway. They went and made a Broadway version of yeah, it. Which screw that. I know, but you know. Now, why don't you, why don't you tell everybody about um, John Carney's latest film? Well, that was what I was going to get to because John Carney made a new film, which is it's like it got standing ovations at uh, at Toronto. It was Toronto, where it's, Toronto. Uh, wasn't it first Toronto and then Sundance, and yeah. people were just going nuts for it. And uh, the Weinstein Company picked it up, and it's called "Can a Song Save Your Life," which is the coolest title in the world because. To me, the beauty of that title is, it's a question. And it's a question, clearly the answer is, the movie answers is yes. But then you ask another question, which is why? And another question, which is how? Spock. Well, it's fascinating. Why? It's just like, it's, it lights a fuse, and it just gets your mind to flutter, and it's so interesting, and it's so memorable. And of course, the marketing uh, buffoons over at, at Weinstein, which I normally admire. Weinstein normally is like cream of the crop when it comes to marketing any movie. I don't know what brain surgeon over there said, yeah, I don't know about that title. Uh, it might be a little confusing. Let's, call, let's give it something utterly and completely uh, negligible and uh, generic like uh, Begin Again. Yeah, that sounds like 950 other movies ever made. No one will ever remember that title. I haven't been able to remember that. Begin Again. What the hell does that mean, Begin Again? It's about somebody who begins again. What the, whatever. They were something, I, and oh now they're gosh. not something. Oh, my gosh. Again. It's the stupidest thing ever. If there's any chance right now to get all the one sheets you printed up for Begin Again, burn them. Just burn them. Go back to the original title, Can a Song Save Your Life. It's the, t- it's the only title that works. It's insane. Yeah, who, yeah. who are these people? Fire them. That's, I mean, whoever sat in a meeting and said, I think we should change the title from Can a Song Save Your Life because, you know, people gave this movie standing ovations with the original title and we can't have that, so we need to, we need to just bury it in, in the middle of summer with something so just, just maudlin and generic that no one will go see it. Horrible decision. I hope it still does well, but there it is. Um, we got some criterions this week too, Mark. Oh, got by the way, wait, let me, no, wait, 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 wait. What? What? You realize what's coming out in Criterion oh. in July. Oh. You're going to keep wait. you're going to keep everybody hanging on. All right, what's coming out? The Big Chill. I know. So right? Good. And Pickpocket. I know. That's I, I I didn't expect that one. Big Chill. I think Big Chill everybody expected because when they released their little doodle at the uh, you That's know right. the, the famous doodle, everybody looked at that, and the the, the one that everybody picked out, they're like, "I bet the big chill is coming." It's pretty I, great. I, that doodle is pretty clever. It's I great. Have to say. That's it's brilliant. Fun. Every year, it's it's one of the one of the things I look forward to the most every year. Um, well, here's what we got this week from Criterion. We got uh, Don Siegel's Riot in Cell Block Eleven from 1954, dual format DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, Don Siegel, one of the original heavy hitting. Just bruiser directors, one of the guys who really pioneered the modern day uh, action film, especially cop film. We all know him primarily, obviously, from, from his Eastwood stuff, uh, notably Dirty Harry. But in 1954, Ride and Cell Block 11 was just a, it, this just blew everyone's mind at the time. Uh, this is one of the original penitentiary movies, and uh, it, it uh, was you know, inspired actually by real uh, actual prison uprisings. And uh, man, uh, it's shot on location in Folsom, and it's just, it's a gritty, gritty movie from 1954. I think it go, it's right up there with uh, On the Waterfront and a lot of those other early 50s films that just kind of changed the whole dynamic of movies 
from the 1940s. Tons and tons of stuff here. The movie is a 2K digital restoration, which is just gorgeous. Has great, great uh, mono audio on the on the Blu-ray. Totally lossless audio commentary from a film scholar named Matthew Bernstein, which is very, very good. Um, excerpts from uh, Siegel's autobiography. Um, that are read by his son. Excerpts from a 1953 NBC radio documentary uh, on on uh, on prisons, which is pretty chilling to be honest, because things have only gotten worse. And uh, it just on and on and on. It's just great stuff. Really, really wonderful. There's also a, a um, uh, an excerpt from 1974 a tribute to uh, Siegel by Sam Peckinpah of all people. And then uh, we also have uh, from uh, 1925 the uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer silent era masterpiece, Master of the House, in a dual format. Blu-ray and DVD. Um, you know, Dreyer is, of course, a, a, an acquired taste. If you're a fan of any of his stuff, particularly The uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, you understand that his, his whole Danish, uh, you know, uh, avant-garde approach to silent cinema is very unusual and not easily digested. But this was a, a bit of a commercial sidebar to a lot of his other stuff. It really was a very successful film. And it is, of all things, a comedy. Uh, a comedy about a, a housewife and uh, her nanny who kind of play a whole uh, farcical game on her horrible, horrible husband. And uh, it's, so it's, it's an unusual film for him, but it is still a little bit of an unusual movie. And then at the very end here, I wanted to make mention of uh, Breaking the Waves. This is a new dual format Blu-ray and uh, DVD uh, set. I love this movie. I admit it. Uh, of the, oh, Lars, the Lars von Trier film from 1996, yes. which Mark and a lot of other people really love. And which, are you ready for this? I don't think you know this. You ain't. That year, this film was not only not in my top ten list, I listed this film as officially, and I was not kidding. I did not do this to be some kind of sensationalistic douchebag like a lot of people do. Like, oh, 12 Years a Slave is the worst movie of the year. You know, whoever the idiots were that were doing that. I mean, I honestly, I, I, I called this the worst film of 1996. <laughs> and I still believe that. I truly despise this movie. I hate every solitary thing about it. It is a wretched, contemptible, self-indulgent pile of excrement. I hate this movie. And I say this with no reservation whatsoever. Of course, Von Trier is all the rage right now again with uh, his four-hour, two-part, uh, you know, in Nymphomaniac, well, which, well, which I tried watching. I, I swear, oh, I, I tried watching 45 minutes of it. I just thought, you know what? I've got, I got like, laundry to fold. I, got, I have more important things to do. No, I was watching screen? it on Flix Fling. What? I was watching it streaming on FlixFling. What is FlixFling? FlixFling's a streaming service. <laughs> they made, said you made that up. I'm not I'm dead serious. I'm yeah, dead serious. It's happened? a streaming service called FlixFling. They sent me a code, and they're like, you want to watch Nymphomaniac? Here's a press it, code. Wait, and I was is, like, all right, what the hell? Is it one and two? Yeah, it's one and two. Can you send me the link? Yeah, I, I think the I think they're codes that are like locked to me somehow. Not I, locked I, to you. It's just a password. Yeah, yeah, sure, here on our show, I'll go, yeah, I'll pass it to you. And I'll give you a bag of cocaine with it, too. Wait, so you watch it on your computer? Yeah. That's lame. Yeah. So anyway, look, 45 minutes in, I was like, are you seriously, honestly, why do I do this to myself? I hate this guy. I used to like him, and then he just lost me. Anyway, breaking, liked the, him. breaking the waves, it just, I, it's, like, it's like Ryan's daughter put through a meat grinder and turned into something else. And it just, it's a horrible film. I really, really hate it. Uh, lots of extras Love here, it. tons of extras, and good for you. Enjoy it if you enjoy the movie. And as long as I'm at it, uh, you know, Lars von Trier is also part of The Five Obstructions, which is out from Kino Lorber in a newly remastered edition. How, which, could, you, how could you not like The Five Obstructions? It's such a clever thing. It is clever. It's cute. I'm just saying it's another von Trier thing. Everybody's trying to capitalize on the fact that everyone's talking about him again right now because of Nymphomaniac. So, yeah, 
yes, the five obstructions is very clever and it's cute and it is what it is. And there it is. So, um, you know, I, 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 it's, you know, his idol, of course, is the, is the, the other guy in the film, uh, Jorgen Leth. And um, it's, you know, whatever. I mean, it's... Uh, Look, you know. Okay, five obstructions. It's what Von Trier does is he takes these five uh, filmmakers mm-hmm. and he has them remake one of his short films. A 12-minute film called The Perfect Human from 1967. But he gives them very, yeah. sp- a very specific set of rules yeah. that they have to abide by in the remaking of this short it, film. It's fine. So it's like an exercise. It's like an experiment. It Lord is. You've got to do it. Whatever, I'm, I, I'm not going to give it away. That's fine. You've got to do it in black and white and there can't be dialogue. Whatever it is, they've all got to remake yada, it yada. to the specifications. Yeah. It's a very interesting experiment. I would definitely check out Five Obstructions. Yes, fine. Thank you. Good. Uh, two classics from Audrey Hepburn. Well, that's, I'm not going to say classics, Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say mini classics. They are mini classics. Kind of classics. But they're Sabrina, really fun. with Humphrey Bogart and William Holden. Oh, not the one with your best friend, Greg Kinnear? Uh, it is not. Okay. You, you'd think it would be, but it's not. Okay. Uh, from he's, he's got a hit on his hands now, too. No, that's, that, that, that show? The, the, no, the, 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 the uh, is Heaven for Real. Uh, yeah, it's getting some good reviews. Yeah. Uh, put it this way. For a movie that is about the type of subject that Hollywood hates covering, which is yeah. like religion and God with any sort of sincerity, yeah. it's pretty much as high-toned a cast and a behind-the-scenes crew yeah. as you could ever assemble. True. It's like Dean Semler, Randall Wallace. Well, I know, right? It's like you know the guy who shot Dances with Wolves is mm-hmm. shooting this movie. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Anyway, uh, back to the movie. Uh, Sabrina is cute. Funny face. I had not seen in a long, long time. This is from 1956. This thing won an Oscar. What can you say? Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hepburn plays this uh, woman who sells books, and she's whisked off to Paris, and she becomes a supermodel. Funny face is probably better for the ladies in the audience, if there are any ladies who listen to the show, because it's essentially Audrey Hepburn in Paris wearing all sorts of gorgeous gowns and being photographed by Fred Astaire. Yep. So it's cute. In that sense. Um, and the music's by George and Ira Gershwin, so it's beautiful. So, and Stanley Donnan directed it. By the way, Stanley Donnan, who you may remember from Saturn 3. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's the only <laughs> thing we should know him from. Yes. That's right. Not, not, not you know, some movie called Charade and Singing in the Rain. No, and it is, uh, no. no, no Saturn negligible. 3. Saturn 3. That's the, that's the man. He is the man. And then Sabrina, you know what? I, I, I never bought Humphrey Bogart as a leading man. To me, he's hard-boiled and that's it. So when he's hanging out with Audrey Hepburn, I'm just not buying it. It was never my thing. It really wasn't my thing. But you know, for I mean, guys, people like it. Yeah, know. people like for guys, for guys who look like that, they, they were all over it. Um, you know what? Uh, Twilight Time. Yay, Twilight Time uh, is out with a whole bunch of new stuff. And we love Twilight Time. All of these are limited 3,000 uh, units uh, available only at ScreenArchives.com. ScreenArchives.com. The only place you can get these. There's 3,000 of them. When they're gone, they're gone. They're done. So get them while they're hot. Um, here are the movies. The, the, the one that's likely least known of all of these is Rita Sue and Bob 2, which is an Alan Clark film from uh, 1987. Alan Clark was the guy who was, when Stephen Frears was, was like making the anti-Thatcher films, Alan Clark was making the really, really, really anti-Thatcher films. So whatever, whatever Frears and Loach and, uh, and Mike Lee were doing, uh, Alan Clark was like turning it up to 11. And you know, Loach and Lee have new films in Cannes. I know, right? Gee, they're really going out on a limb there. 
It's like, oh, 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 the Loach said it's uh, it's his uh, last uh, fiction film. I'm sure it is. Whatever. Look, it, it can at this point, can will will if, if Mike Lee and, and Ken Loach came there with just blank leader, they 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 get they get into the can general uh, official selection the way that Meryl Streep gets Oscar nominations. It's just almost a joke at this point. But anyway, um, Alan Clark, Reed Sue and Bob Two is actually a comedy. It's a farce. It's kind of his version of uh, Jules and Jim. And uh, it's it's good. I mean, I'm not a huge Alan Clark fan. This comes with obviously the usual uh, isolated uh, music and effects track, uh, audio commentary with f- a couple of film historians. Uh, one of whom is Nick Redman, who I like quite a lot. Um, it, you know, it's funny and it's uh, touching and it's very gritty British in that way. But uh, it's it's definitely worth checking out. And then here is the here's the here's the good stuff. Here's the really good stuff. Mr. Hobbs takes a vacation. Mark, you like Mr. Hobbs takes a vacation? Jimmy Stewart, very funny film. It's cute, cute comedy. It's cute. it's cute. Henry Coster directed. Very very fun. Uh, this comes with a, uh, a newsreel and the original trailer, and of course the isolated score. And then brilliant used cars on Blu-ray, folks. Used cars on Blu-ray with the audio commentary track that includes Bob Gale, Kurt Russell, and Robert Zemeckis that I cannot stop listening to. The greatest audio commentary in the history of DVDs and Blu-rays. Totally. There has never been a better commentary. Totally. This is the one you want to listen to. Totally. It's out there. Twilight Time nailed it. They got it. They licensed it. It's right there. Thank you, Sony, for letting them use it. Blu-ray of used cars. Funny-ass movie. It is brilliant. Listen to the part where, where Kurt, uh, Kurt Russell just cannot stop laughing as they're talking about the hypoglycemic kid that the, uh, the ADs were plying with, uh, with, with sugar, and then he just took off running across a field. It's one of the funniest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> I cannot stop listening to it. Kurt Russell is inconsolable. He is on the commentary. You can tell blood vessels are bursting in his face just remembering this moment. It is so funny. The best. Uh, Wild at Heart, David Lynch's Wild at Heart, out on uh, Blu-ray from Twilight Time, part of the MGM uh, 90th anniversary celebration. And uh, this movie, you know, was rated NC-17 at the time when it aired at Cannes. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And, uh, you know, I'm not giving anything away here. The only reason it was rated NC-17 was because of the shot at the end with Willem Dafoe's head flying through the air. And they had to, like, put an extra layer of smoke over it, and that got it an, an R. It's the strangest thing in the world. It wasn't like, it wasn't the sex stuff where Nick Cage is just nailing Laura Dern like there's nobody's business. No, they were okay with that. It was Willem Dafoe's head. I'm going to make Are a prediction. Are you serious? Wait, here's the thing. Yeah. Now, recently, there's been the possibility of a reinvigoration of Kevin Costner's career. I know, right? Which I, which I like. I'm all for it. Yes, yeah. I'm all for I, it. I want him reinvigorated as a director. I think he's an outstanding director. Yes, I agree. I believe, yeah. next in line, yeah. is Nicolas Cage. I agree. I think that I agree. if Matthew McConaughey can, can <laughs> if that guy can turn it around. I know, I hear you. Yeah. To Oscar-winning effect. Yeah. Then Nick Cage. The Nick Cage. Whatever, whatever tax. Whatever Look, tax problems he has that makes him take whatever if, movie he can if, take. If the if the Nick Cage from Birdie can come back, I will be thrilled. Yes. Um, Wild at Heart is a film I am very very fond of. It has all kinds of subtle uh, connections to The Wizard of Oz. I know people are like, what? No, it does. Uh, and uh, all of that is discussed here in the uh, in the special features as well. And um, you know what? You, 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 you got to check it out. Now, I, uh, full disclosure, you know, my wife used to work for David Lynch, so I, I have some connection. I've, I've been up there to the house, quote-unquote, the house, uh, on occasion for, for parties and things. And um, it's quite an interesting world that he surrounds himself with. And uh, Wild at Heart, not my favorite Lynch film, but i got to say, certainly one of the best. And then last but definitely not least, also part of the MGM uh, 90th uh, anniversary deal, 
is uh, Broadway Danny Rose. Yet another one of the uh, Woody Allen films that Twilight, Twilight Time keeps, uh, keeps getting to license. And I have such... Uh, forget about the, the whole Woody Mia Farrow thing that has kind of blown up and now gone away again, thank goodness. But I have such an abiding love for this movie. I, I, keep, I, I'm, you know, I almost hesitate, but I, this may be my favorite Woody Allen film of all time. No, it's not. I kid you not. There is something about Broadway Danny Rose that I find so wonderful. It's not just the funny stuff. It's not just the, the shootout in the helium factory and the, the idea of a stuttering ventriloquist. I mean, there are so many conceptual things in here that are so outrageously funny. I, can't, I just can't handle it. But something about the movie is just... There's this wonderful gut-wrenching sadness about it. I mean, th- those guys were talking about him at the beginning, because the whole movie is a flashback, right? It's those guys, those old guys sitting in a, in a diner in New York just saying, Broadway Danny Rose. You remember Broadway Danny Rose? I remember Broadway Danny Rose. Brought- Let me tell you about Broadway Danny Rose. Stories about- and they tell the story, and then, bang, you go into it. And there's something about that that is just like, you go, I'll bet these guys were a dime a dozen. These, these, these kind of low-level loser agent, manager types, you know, booking agents just barely getting by because they, they represented a bunch of losers. I mean, there's something, something about the whole concept that's just great. Uh, beautiful black and white. It's just a great movie. Absolutely great movie. Nothing else on here other than uh, isolated music and effects and a trailer, and there doesn't need to be. On Blu-ray, this is one of the great Woody Allen films of all time. Maybe my favorite of all time. And while I'm at it really quickly, also at ScreenArchives.com, they're effectively connected to La La Land Records, and uh, La La Land has been sending us a few of their special edition uh, soundtracks, which are pretty cool. Uh, i got three here. The expanded original motion picture soundtrack for Creep Show by John Harrison. Uh, some of All Fears, Jerry Goldsmith's uh, score in a limited edition. Uh, only uh, like 1,500 copies, 3,000 units, sorry, 3,000 units of this. And then Wavelength, uh, the more Tangerine Dream music in a limited edition. So uh, that's 1,500 units. These are all special editions, and uh, if you are a score fan, I recommend all three of these. Um, really cool. Uh, you know, again, Tangerine Dream, much better in, in Sorcerer, but Wavelength, the uh, interesting score. Never seen the movie, but it's cool music. Some of all fears, of course, Jerry Goldsmith can do no wrong. And Creepshow, it's, you know, it's cool and creepy. Creepshow. Creepshow. Yeah, has Ted uh, has Ted Danson uh, drowning. There you go. That's all you need. Uh, all I need is the pawnbroker way. The pawnbroker. Oh, pawnbroker. Now, here's the thing with The Pawnbroker, which, yeah. by the way, has an amazing performance by Rod Steiger, nominated for an Oscar, plays a uh, concentration camp survivor yep. in World War II who loses all hope and pretty much takes out his misery on all the customers and pimps and prostitutes who frequent his uh, Harlem pawn shop. And Steiger's amazing. I mean, he, he, it's the story of a guy who pretty much, based on his experiences in the death camp, has lost all hope, lives in misery, and is pretty much spiritually dead and winds up just in Harlem running this pawn shop. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing. And yep. what people have to remember, too, about this movie is that not only is it one of the first films, if not the first film, American film, to deal with the Holocaust, it's incredibly intense. It's not just intense for like... Ni- it's not even like 1964 intense. It's like 2014 intense. This movie is intense today. It is. And it's also a bit historic because this was one of the first films, if not the first film... To really stick to the production code. Now, the, yeah, it was. It really was. In this film, uh, there is a scene of um, uh, Rod Steiger's wife in flashback, I believe it's flashback, um, exposing her breasts. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, that's a big deal. Production code would not allow for that. Nope. And in fact, the uh, Catholic Legion of Decency like condemned the movie. Mm hmm. And the production code, the motion picture production code, you know, this film was going to be unreleasable yep. until that cut was made. 
but in a move that really helped turn Hollywood away from the production code and really had them say, you know what? Screw the production code. We're going to release these movies anyway. They got some sort of a release from the production code where the production code said, look, we believe we're going to, we are going to give this movie an exception. We're going to say it is an artistic you know, depiction of the female body based on what the character is going through and the themes of the movie. So we will give this movie an exception so you can show these breasts in this movie. Yep. And that was really one of the first times that the production code actually did an about face. I know. And it's, gave it's, the movie an exception. So that helped turn Hollywood away from the production code. And so the Pawn Broker not only was a great film on its own, but it also helped end the stranglehold that the production had that the production code had on all the scripts and movies coming out of Hollywood. Sure did. Legendary. Yes, Legendary. the Pawn Broker classic. City Lament, by the way, directed that. And then the, uh, the last set of um, uh, older movies, classic movies, uh, we got a bunch from the Warner Archive collection, available at warnerarchive.com. And uh, one of them actually is the, uh, the earlier version of a film that we talked about a few weeks ago, also from Warner Archive, which was the, the uh, later version of The Last of Mrs. Cheney, C-H-E-Y-N-E-Y, not to be confused with anybody who used to be Vice President of the United States. Uh, the that was the um, uh, the Joan Crawford version, and the original version is the Norma Shearer version, which is just as good in many ways, might even be better, along with Basil Rathbone. Uh, that is out now uh, as well. Beautiful black and white transfer, actually, even though it's a DVD-R. It's like gorgeous looking. Uh, and then we also have Norma Shearer and Robert Taylor in her Cardboard Lover, also with uh, George Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Patterson. And, uh, you know, it's a, that's kind of a... a it, this is a lot more generic of the era, but uh, Norma Shearer is always just really wonderful as a leading lady. Just absolutely gorgeous. Robert Taylor is always fun. And then uh, a couple of uh, more recent films that are not so great. Kurt Russell in Search for the Gods, uh, kind of a cheesy 70s era thing. And uh, a, an early Michelle Pfeiffer thing, The Children Nobody Wanted. I really don't know what this movie's about. I was just staring at Michelle Pfeiffer the whole time, um, who's just so ageless and wonderful. So it's about something, um, foster home or something, but Michelle Pfeiffer's gorgeous in it. And then lastly, one of those rare Warner Archive Collection uh, Blu-rays, Mick Jagger in performance. Look at that. Man, I, I didn't expect this one. I uh, really didn't. And, uh, you know, such an unusual film because it was co-directed by Nicholas Rogue along with Donald Camel. I don't know what Donald Camel would have had to do in it. Uh, Nicholas Rogue basically is all over this movie. So, uh, but it, I got to tell you, man, it's, it is a, this is a strange, twisted, cool, weird movie. And uh, it just it screams 1970 all over it. And um, Mick is great in it. He's cool. Oh, yeah, he is cool. You know, his uh, movie career never really... It never did. And I'm not off. quite sure why. Because he's, he's good at... Like Roger Daltrey, he tried to do a I know. movie career too. Anyway, uh, now, Wade, we have an interview with um, Stephen Frears, the great Stephen Frears. Now, before we... Now, should we talk about Philomena before... Talk about it first. Answer? Talk about it first. Now, Philomena... Let's go into, into Frears. Philomena was nominated for four Oscars, and, uh, including Best Picture. And it's a terrific film. I, I don't really want to tell you much about it, only because there's some twists and turns I do not want to give away. Mm-hmm. All I'll say is that Judy Dench plays uh, Philomena. She had given her son uh, up for adoption 50 years earlier, and now with the help of a former BBC reporter played by Steve Coogan, wants to find her son, who she gave up for adoption. I will not tell you whether she finds the son, 
whether or not she finds the son, it's all part of the story. And Steve it's all very Coogan. surprising. Steve Coogan wrote this. And Steve Coogan, 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 he shows some colors here that we had not seen before from That's him. That's right. And I like it. It's great. Because the thing with Stephen Frears is Stephen Frears, and this is what he does, there's something very mainstream feeling about his movies, yet there's so much emotion and resonance to them that they're not these dark, deep, depressing movies. There's something bright and mainstream about the look of them, I but will, yet... Yeah. And a lot of that, it, you, he talks about some of that. It's actually quite funny in the interview. You'll, you'll see. But the the thing I was thinking when I was watching this, because I've seen so many Freer's films, I think I have him down. He's not one of those directors where you go, oh, that's a Stephen Freer's move. Oh, that's Stephen Freer. He has no trademark thing. He just... He just goes and he does the work and he does it incredibly well. And you know, as much as I've seen his movies, I still can't. I can't get ahead of him. There are moments in this movie where I was like, "Oh, you son of a! You set me up!" And there, and there, you just and now I'm crying again. You, you, you got me. You just I should have seen that coming, and you got me. And it just he's he's just amazing. He just impresses the hell out of me endlessly. All right, much without any further ado, then here is Stephen Frears. Yes, yeah, Stephen. Hi. Well, con- congratulations on uh, on yet another extraordinary success with an independent film that I think kind of came from the uh, the back of the pack during awards season. I think uh, Philomena just surprised all the big studios in a in a huge way. Um, I, you, you do like to mix it up, and did when you made Philomena, did you anticipate that it would become uh, kind of a big award season contender like it did? I thought Judy would get nominated, <laughs> but the whole thing is no. I mean, you, 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 you don't expect the success it's had. Yeah. You don't expect it to take the money it's taken. How did things? How were things different on this film versus Mrs. Henderson Presents? Mrs. Henderson Presents is easily one of my favorite films of the past fifteen or twenty years. I, I, I just thought it was one of your best, one of her best. An extraordinary film. Filmina, very different, smaller. Yeah. Clo- closer to contemporary, and her character obviously less uh, less imposing and much more demure. And did that? Did all of those things factor into a different relationship, a different working uh, situation? Well, it didn't factor into a different working relationship, but you sort of deal with those things instinctively, don't you? It was about a woman who was about two sort of quite modest people. You sort of. I mean, but did I ever think about it? Not particularly. It just seemed natural. Talk for talk for a second too about the the, the screenplay. Um, did uh, were you and Steve Coogan uh, friends or acquaintances prior to working on this film? No, I'd met him, but not really. No. What was you know? You've obviously worked with uh, Peter Morgan and and some of the great screenwriters in the world. Um, how did how did this screenplay sort of hit you when you read it? It's it's it seems. Uh, a lot wittier and yet a lot more acerbic in many respects than what you're, you you normally work with. Uh, how? What was your initial reaction to reading the script? Well, I must have been interested, or I wouldn't have got any further. <laughs> I immediately found it interesting, and then as we went along, you find more and more. That, I mean, I remember discovering about Steve's lapsed Catholicism and strengthening all of that in the film. So you, you know, you get sort of hooked, really, like a fish. And you get more and more interested to the point where you actually have to make the bloody thing. Um, That's all. 
and mm. it's easier. But you know, the qualities you see in it, again, I sort of don't terribly think about them. It's said on the, you know, it, it, that's how the people are, and you just think, oh, that's this is what feels right. Were you were you very familiar? Because I, I I would assume that the story of Philomena Lee was much more uh, commonly known in the UK, and I certainly mean, I never heard. I never heard about. I, I, mean, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know the children for babies were sold. I didn't know any of that. I Interesting. Didn't know there were these things called Magdalene laundries because there was another film, wasn't there? Yeah. I knew virtually nothing except that there were these convents in which, you know. Did did uh, did you rely entirely, pretty much, on the screenplay, or did did you go back and speak with Philomena herself and and do any additional uh, work, kind of, well, to? Philomena was around. Okay. I mean, she was there if you wanted to talk to her. And in fact, I was in, you know, she was in Hollywood over over the Oscar season, and she kept telling stories. I said, well, if you told me that, I'd have put it in the film. <laughs> My, and the, I'm not a Catholic. I know nothing about Catholicism. My main source of my main source, I suppose, was Steve, who was brought up Catholic. So you learn as you go along. Yeah. What um, What was the the overall uh, process of the film like versus some of your other films? Did it was this was this uh, given the fact that it, it certainly seemed to be less logistically imposing than something like Mrs. Henderson or The Queen, or or did it come with different challenges? No, the challenge is always just to get it right, get the writing right. Mm-hmm. You know, it required whatever it required. It wasn't particularly complicated or exhausting. You know, it just you just had to get things right the whole time. And the mainly that mainly consisted of getting the script right, getting the writing right. So, so there was still more work after the the story first came to you. The script first came to you. You, I mean, you were involved in. You go on writing the script and you finish the film. Right. What uh, when you when you finished the film? Uh, looking back on it, uh, you know, I assume every single film project you, the, the Coen brothers are very famously said that at a certain point it stops being the film that you wrote and it just becomes the film that it is. And you have to sort of acclimate yourself to the idea that, uh, that if, uh, you know, whatever you envision when you start shooting, it becomes something very different by the time all, everyone contributes and all of the, the various energies of the universe play into it. D- did the film itself um, wind up being in any way uh, significantly different from what you originally imagined, better, uh, just different? Just clearer and clearer what, what you're doing. And by the end, you think, oh, I see, yes, that's what it is. It, it just gets clearer. Yeah. So it's a sort of steady progress towards the light, as it were. Um, and things that were sort of, it's always a bit vague in my head when I'm shooting it. And then slowly you sort it out. And think, oh no, that, I see now exactly what I, where I was going. I never quite know at the beginning. So that sounds like like post production is oftentimes in the editing is where you you find the movie. Is that a thing to say? Yes, but of course you've done a lot of things instinctively which turn out to be right. I've also done things instinctively which turn out to be wrong. But <laughs> you, 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 Picasso said it's always an accident, and then you you sort of somehow sort it out. Hmm. 
Well, that's the movement towards getting your head clear. I, I, I would I would assume that's not not a uh, something that you typically tell the studio executives because that. Uh, yes, no, no, no. They always they always think it's very very clear, but of course it isn't. And you right. Can't uh, you know the the thing that I find so striking in the film, and which everyone commented on, was that the chemistry between Steve and Judy is just so incredibly natural. And uh, they didn't really have a relationship uh, professionally before the film. Was there any indication? Sorry. Well, in the sense you're taking a guess, I thought they'd be very good together. Yeah. So you know. I guess I got it, and, and um, they adored each other. So I guess I got it right. Sometimes, you get, sometimes you get it wrong. Well, that, no, it, it is extraordinary the way that they they just there, there are moments in the film which uh, where I think what makes the scene work is the fact that it's not what they're saying to each other; it's what they're not saying to each other. You sort of catch their thoughts in a certain moment. Um, some, some days you're lucky. <laughs> I think I think I think your career is is built on a lot more than luck. Uh, you know, there's certainly I mean, you t but you talk about instinct. How much are you really instinctual in in the way that you work? Well, as much as I possibly can be. I'd like if I had my way, the whole thing would come from your unconscious, but it doesn't. As much as possible. I mean, it's a sort of odd combination of instinct and intelligence and experience. Well, it is. It, it, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's coming out on DVD and Blu-ray, and that uh, everyone who who missed it, shame on them for doing so during award season, uh, can discover it now. I think it's it's going to have a very very long and and successful life, uh, well beyond the theaters. And you're you're right now. We're talking to you in London. You're uh, finishing up yet another film. You're the hardest working man uh, in show business by far. Could you uh, say anything about the film you're currently working on? No, it's about. Um it's not a biopic, but it's about the it's about the doping years. Right. It's about the years he was in Europe, ninety three to ninety three to two thousand and nine. Uh, and Lance Armstrong is being played by Ben Foster, who's brilliant. Brilliant. Well, he was he was certainly outstanding in uh, in Lone Survivor, and uh, he had a he had a big big year last year. So you've. Yes. Once, it, once again, you've, you've landed right on, uh, on an actor who's having a, a great moment. Um, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for speaking with us, and good luck uh, both on the home release of Philomena and uh, on the Lance Armstrong film going forward, and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully next year when, uh, when you're nominated yet again. <laughs> That'll be the day. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Got him to laugh, right? I got him to laugh. <laughs> That, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make just just to you know because he was hate, you could tell he was just hating it so much. And the connection is not great with the UK and the whole thing. And you know, so hopefully, hopefully everybody was able to uh, make the best of the uh, the difficult audio there. But you know, hey man, he, he rocks. He's the guy. He's I the would man. Uh, rank these three Stephen Frears films yes. from most favorite to least favorite. I'll give you three. Uh huh. Ready? Yeah. High fidelity. Yep. Dirty pretty things. Now I'm 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 not giving you the the usual ones. Oh boy! Dirty pretty things, high fidelity, or the grifters. Oh jeez! Which one? Most um, favorite to least favorite? High fidelity, dirty pretty things. I the got grifters. Look, the grifters is tops for me right there, just because of Annette Benning. 
complete, just uh, unbelievable. Uh, Annette Benning alone gets that atop for me. Uh, then I guess Dirty Pretty Things, and then High Fidelity. That's tough. That's tough. I mean, That's tell, really I mean tough. tell me that those aren't, aren't all great that Because that may be my, my favorite Jack Black performance is, is High Fidelity. That's right. You know, that's really, that's tough. And, that's uh, tough. Dirty, and for me, Dirty Pretty Things, that was kind of the, um, the uh, kind of the coming out party for yeah. uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, right? It was. That was. That, that was, was like that the was, first time I really kind of said, That was, was the first guy? time anybody paid attention to him. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, we got a we got a few more uh, uh, newer films to get through. Um, uh, Better Living Through Chemistry. We're going to do these really quickly and get through these. Better Living Through Chemistry is kind of like Double Indemnity, which we talked about earlier, crossed with uh, a little bit of uh, Breaking Bad uh, and a great performance by Sam Rockwell. And uh, it's not great, but I you know it somehow I just can't resist Sam Rockwell in it. He's just really really good. Jane Fonda shouldn't even get uh, billing here. She she narrates the movie and then she shows up at the end for about 16 seconds. Uh, but uh, this is out in a Blu-ray and uh, uh, ultraviolet uh, set, and uh, worth worth watching I think just for Sam Rockwell because he's just so good. Um, but not necessarily worth owning. I don't think he plays you know basically a small town pharmacist who hates his life and uh, has an unhappy marriage, and then you know a mistress enters the picture and, and murder enters the picture, and you know you can fill in the rest. But Sam Rockwell, man, one of the most underrated actors in Hollywood. He really is. Oh, I love him. He's great. Uh, wait, what's not great is uh, Labor Day. Now, Jason Reitman is going to have to uh, figure something out because... Um... Man, how did that tank? That just, that's so unfortunate. I remember an award season when this was on the short list of films that everybody felt they had to see. And I contacted the studio and I was like, are you guys going to send out any screeners for uh, Labor Day? And I didn't get past Labor Day. And all I heard was, yeah, no, that's not being sent out. And I was like, well, that tells me all I need to know. Well, they, they screened the heck out of it and then, yeah. uh, you know, beforehand, but they didn't send out screeners. No. Now you have Up in the Air and Juno, two terrific films. I don't know what's happened to him since, but Labor Day is a whole other side of him because you'd think it'd be like this really edgy, yeah. dark look at this at this very yeah. uh, troubled mother who takes in this escaped convict yeah, and how he changes her life and that kind of. But instead, this thing is very sugary and a little bit kind of cheesy yeah. and very sappy. And I was just very surprised. I mean, it it starts out. It's got like an edgy kind of almost Hitchcockian setup, mm-hmm. but then in the end, it just goes to these emotional places that are just completely cheeseball. I know, and I was just very disappointed. I just did not like where this thing went. So very melodramatic and tough uh, year for Josh Brolin silly. too. Huh? Tough year for Josh Brolin too. I know. Although that he was... did, he although he did start an Oscar-winning Best Picture. Yeah, but that was this was supposed to be like a big season for him. Two films, and they both tanked. And he's he's not sort of carry, He's not pulling his weight as a leading man. No, he he's really not. isn't. I you know to me he seems like a really really strong B player. Yeah, yes, he he's an ensemble guy. Like really if, if, if something sort of like you know Leonardo DiCaprio and Josh Brolin, you'd be that'd be super cool. Yeah. Uh, Barefoot is a, uh, a remake of a German film that uh, I went through hell to actually try to find and see and could not. And, uh, I, you know, the German film, I'm going to assume, is probably a lot better. Um, just because the casting is more interesting. The, the idea is Scott Speedman and Evan Rachel Wood uh, in a very strange romance. He's a, he's a guy from, you know, a, a, he should, he's, he's the kid, the, the son from this uh, very wealthy family and successful family who should be doing better, right? And uh, he's kind of the, you know, the, the, the maverick, the black sheep or whatever. And he gets in, he, he falls in with this woman who's really messed up, played by Evan Rachel Wood, who is, basically is like, like, was kept in a cave her whole life, you know, just never, has no connection to the real world. Her mom died and she's just uh, this, this weird little waif-like thing. 
and uh, it, it's it's an unusual romance. Has some okay supporting performances, but Scott Speedman is not the guy. Evan Rachel Wood, very very good, uh, but he's not the guy. So you know, uh, check out the German film and let me know what you think of it. Uh, music by Michael Penn, for what that's worth. I like Michael Penn. Yeah. For a while, he he had a solo career for a while, and uh, he was cool. And then uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which was in development forever. Forever this movie was in development and was attached to uh, have uh, Jim Carrey star for uh, a while. And uh, then finally it went on ice for a couple of years and came back as a Ben Stiller vehicle with Ben Stiller uh, directing it and starring in it. And uh, this is out on Blu-ray and DVD and Ultraviolet. And i got to say, this is one of the more ambitious films from last year, but... It somehow it's like despite all of its ambition and all of its uh, innovative, it's a very different take obviously on the Danny Kay film. I mean, it's nothing like the original Danny Kay film. Uh, it's much more existential and philosophical, and you know, it's it 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 uses digital effects in really innovative ways. But somehow, didn't you feel like it just missed the mark a little bit? Yeah, it did. You know what? You know what it is. And it's, I don't. I can't, I can't put my finger on it. I, I feel like it's sort of. It should have had everything clicking on all cylinders, and I don't know why they didn't. I, I don't know. And that I don't, frustrates I don't, me. I don't buy Ben Stiller as a guy who's going to make me uh, rethink my life. Yeah. I see, I see Ben Stiller as a guy who does Tropic Thunder. Yeah. And, and cracked me up. Yeah, true. He's just not that director to me. Well, uh, anyway. And I, and I, I think he was a little too enamored of all the uh, green screen special effects opportunities yeah. that the well, movie presented. Well, it's, you know, some wonderful behind-the-scenes stuff on here. It's a gorgeous-looking Blu-ray. Uh, uh, you know, it really gives you a lot of insight into how the film was made, which is very, very interesting. But um, somehow it just misses the mark. I, it, worth seeing. Definitely worth seeing. It's, I, I, I don't want to call it a failure. It's just kind of a, a near-miss, but still, it is, you know, it is what it is. All right, wait, let's talk about um, Ice Cube and Kevin Hart in Ride Along. Oh, yeah. Very popular movie. Terrible movie, that's it. <laughs> it's you know it it's trying what this this very obvious what this is trying to do it's sort of trying to do the uh, the buddy cop thing uh, maybe with a little bit of training day maybe a little training day angle on it a little bit of a forty little forty eight hours everybody's trying everybody's trying to make Kevin Hart the new Eddie Murphy I don't know if he's the new Eddie Murphy but he's definitely the the new Kevin Hart and I like I've always liked Kevin Hart I've always thought he was really funny but I gotta say. Watching this, I'm a little worried that his shtick is really, really shallow. Lame. Don't you he's think? He's like the he's the next Wayne's brother to me. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Well, he he he's he's a funny guy when he shows up for ten, fifteen, maybe twenty minutes in a movie. Is like the the, the other guy when he's suddenly like a co-star, like a top liner, like name above the title. I it it just feels like he's he's got like four gears. And he keeps recycling those gears over and over, and I'm starting I, to get worried. I don't see it. I don't yeah. get it. Don't get it. Don't I, see it. I, I mean, his, his stand-up is hilarious. I love his stand-up. I think it's great. But um, he, needs, he needs better material. He needs better material. All right, with that, we are done. We will be back next week with a lot of awesome stuff. And uh, wish me well, because I got, I got film week next week, so I got, to, uh, I got, to, I got like nine, nine horrible movies opening next week I got to see. I, I'm not even sure I'm going to see the, uh, the remake of uh, District uh, B13. There's What's a remake it? of District B13? You didn't know that? There's not. Paul Walker's in it. There's a steel... Oh, is that that uh, Brick Mansion? Brick Mansion. Is that what that's that is? It. That's what that is. Yes. Oh, it, Luke Besson co-wrote the script. Well, that doesn't mean much nowadays. Yeah, well... It used to. I know. Paul, Luke Besson writes the script for like 17 movies a year. It makes me wonder exactly what he's doing. Anyway, we're back next week.